What I would like to talk about this evening is the question of wise effort. And I'd like to begin with a story, but first to explain that in this story I didn't make it up, therefore I don't mean to offend Catholics nor to praise Buddhists. The story, a Zen master was once invited to a great Catholic monastery to give instruction in Zen practice. And he exhorted the monks there to meditate and to try and solve their koan or Zen question with great energy and zeal. He told them that if they could practice with full-hearted effort, true understanding would come to them. One old monk raised his hand. Master, he said, our way of prayer is different than this. We've been meditating and praying in the simplest fashion, without effort, waiting instead to be illuminated by the grace of God. In Zen, is there anything like this illuminating grace that comes to one uninvited? The Zen master looked back and responded, In Zen, he said, we believe that God has already done his share. The question of effort is one of the most crucial questions we encounter in meditation. It's very clear that in our lives as well as in our meditation, some quality of effort is required if we are really going to deepen or to bring to fulfillment anything that we really honor and value probably the only thing in our lives that doesn't take a great deal of effort is going to sleep. Everything else we see, if we really value it, requires our attention, requires us to attend to it in a conscious and in a a caring way. In meditation, in this practice, we are initiating a movement. In many ways, we're also reaching for qualities of mind and heart which we sense are possible within ourselves, but which may also not be fully present. We come to meditation often seeking for understanding and seeking for changes to take place. And that understanding and the changes again may exist somewhat apart from our actual experience in this moment. We probably all have, perhaps, different objectives in meditation. But the qualities of calm, of spaciousness, of peace, the quality of open-heartedness, the possibility of awakening, are what attract many of us to this path. And I feel all of us too, have enough life experience by now that we really don't believe that much in fairy godmothers anymore and really acknowledge that really no one can make to us a gift of these changes. No one can wrap these qualities in a package and present them to us. We probably also recognize 
perhaps somewhat reluctantly, that fantasy and that resolutions and that desires and yearning also tend to do very little to bring about the changes that we really honor and that we really seek for. And what often at this point in our own lives and meditation, this very frequently a deep acknowledgement that no one else apart from us can make changes for us, that no one apart from us can substitute for us in traveling this path, in bringing the emergence of wisdom and love. And the effort that is really needed somehow needs to come from within ourselves. The effort needs to be born within ourselves. In meditation practice, effort is always talked about. It's a major part of developing this practice as we see. It is part, one of the links in the Eightfold Path. It's one of the factors of enlightenment. And it's not just effort alone that is spoken of in this practice. What is spoken of is right effort. A word we sometimes have trouble with. And we see that if there is such a thing praised as right effort, it clearly implies that there's such a thing as wrong effort. And if we understand that right effort essentially directs us towards the development of mindfulness, towards awakening, then it wouldn't obviously be illogical to assume that wrong effort is going to take us in the opposite direction. That wrong effort very well might just lead us into greater confusion, conflict, and limitation. There are many things that we can very much be grateful to the Buddha for. One of the things I feel that we can be very grateful to the Buddha for is that he spent a whole lot of time developing wrong effort. Matter of fact, he spent years doing it. It's not my interpretation, he quite honestly admitted this. He spent years pursuing paths and approaches to meditation which essentially said led in dead ends. He spent years developing self-denial and self-punishment. This was a particular path he followed for a period of time and perfected very well. He spent years following the path of indulgence in ways much better than we've probably done. He spent a lot of time exploring the whole avenue of control and a lot of time exploring the extremes and becoming an intimate master of asceticism. And we should be grateful because essentially this could save us a whole lot of time. Basically, if we can listen and perhaps even learn from what he did, we perhaps can don't need to follow the same avenues in order to see, learn the same lessons. That wrong, wrong effort basically consumes energy and leads to limitation and to confusion. 
Understandably, we have tendencies that make us at times very reluctant and sometimes wisely reluctant to accept the experience of another. We might tell ourselves, clearly the Buddha was a different person than I am. What didn't work for him might very well work for me. And we often have a certain kind of feeling that we have to experience everything through our own eyes before we can trust it. It's clear that here, no one, or anywhere else, no one can actually stop us from engaging in wrong effort. No one even knows necessarily, unless you tell us, that you're engaging in great ascetic practices, you know, or or great areas of control. No one can actually prevent us but we still need to look at our own quality of effort in this practice. If we find ourselves repeatedly involved in struggle, in conflict, in pain, in meditation, then it is very worthwhile asking ourselves to pay attention to what is actually going on to really pay attention to the quality of effort that we are using in our practice, to really pay attention to our very approach to meditation. If you have spent days, never mind years, going through the same things, struggling with the same issues, coming to the same blocks or obstacles, going through the same extremes, then it is time and worthwhile for all of us to ask ourselves and to really look at our very approach to the practice. It's not difficult for us to discern and to understand what wrong effort is. And wrong, I know, is a kind of charged word, but we could use unwise or unskillful. It is not difficult to discern what unskillful effort is. If you find that there's difficult mental states that continue, that don't change, that we experience in exactly the same way again and again, if we find ourselves assaulted by or feeling invaded by a repetitive process of thinking, of thought patterns that weigh like a stone in our minds. If we find ourselves struggling and battling and warring with ourselves or filled with resistance, all of these experiences really do tell us a great deal about the quality of our attention. They don't necessarily tell us a great deal about who we are, but they can tell us a great deal about the quality of our attention, that the kind of effort that we're making. Sometimes what happens is if you find something repeating itself again and again, you find yourself up against the same walls and the same edges, it often happens that we conclude that we're experiencing this problem because of the contents of our minds, because of the problem or the issue or the memory or the image that keeps arising again and again. 
we conclude often that it's the kind of thoughts and feelings that we're experiencing that are responsible for struggle and responsible for conflict and for difficulty. When we conclude or believe that the difficulty lies in the contents of our minds, who we are, what we're experiencing, what we tend to do is we become very busy with strategies. We bring out our fix-it mind. How can I fix it? How can I make it different? How can I have a different kind of thought, a better one? How can I have a different kind of feeling or a different kind of memory? How can I have a different uh, kind of fantasy, even? We get involved in strategies of either trying to subdue what we're experiencing or trying to alter it, or we find ourselves responding with blame and judgment. I'm obviously a hopeless spiritual failure because I keep repeating and experiencing these same terrible thoughts. If we're honest with ourselves, I doubt if anybody invited the contents of their minds in today. Maybe now and again. But how much of what you've experienced today in terms of content, thoughts, feelings, memories, did you actually invite? Did you get up this morning and say, well, this is a great day to be depressed? (laughs) Or, you know, after lunch, finish your lunch and say, you know, I haven't been angry for a while. A little anger wouldn't go amiss. Let's spend the rest of the day storming. (laughs) How responsible do we feel for the contents of our minds? Often terribly responsible. We become so responsible for the contents of our minds and at times so busy in trying to alter them that what we miss or perhaps omit to do is to look at our relationship to them. Is to give the primary attention not to the contents but to our actual relationship to them in the moment that they arise. As far as I uh, understand, meditation is really not very concerned with redecorating our minds. Instead of the busyness of the strategies, instead of the blame and the judgment, sometimes it is really helpful to ask ourselves, What kind of energy are we bringing to our experience? What kind of effort do we make in relationship to our thoughts and feelings, in relationship to the pleasant and to the unpleasant? There is surely nothing that is more guaranteed to perpetuate and reinforce mental states and thoughts and feelings and images than avoidance and holding. Resistance and clinging give a solidity to whatever arises within our bodies, feelings, and minds. The second question I feel it's important to ask ourselves is do we actually need to? Do we actually have to experience 
this constant repetition? Do we have to experience this kind of solidity and all the struggles, all of the struggling and the resistances that are born of it? It may be that we don't seem to have much choice at times over the contents of our minds, but that doesn't imply that we have no choice in our relationship to them. It doesn't mean that we have no freedom in our relationship to what we actually experience. It doesn't imply that we have no choice and no freedom in the quality of energy and the quality of effort that we're able to bring to whatever we experience. Wise effort, a skillful effort, it's not difficult to define. It is simply the effort to be mindful. It is simply the effort to be awake and conscious. A quality of mindfulness, as Carl was speaking about yesterday, that brings us closer to the present moment, to our actual experience of it. And in coming closer to the present moment, really beginning to develop a sense of clear comprehension. Clear clear comprehension means seeing without filters, without projection, without likes and dislikes, without prejudice, without judgments, without shoulds. It means just clear comprehension. There is very little in this world that calls upon us for our evaluation in terms of good, bad, wrong, right, negative, positive. Clear comprehension in a very real way means being able to clear ourselves of those filters, to connect with what we're actually experiencing. And that allows not only deepening in meditation, but it is what is the primary ingredient in letting go. Unless we clearly comprehend what we're experiencing, it's quite impossible to let go of it, to let go of anything. Unless we clearly connect with what's actually going on, it's so difficult for us to let go of anything, no matter how many times in our minds we say, I must let go of this as long as it is layered with our projections, with our likes and dislikes, it is almost impossible just to be able to have that freedom of letting it be. If you have any (coughs) um, acquaintance with Buddhism, one of the things you're probably aware of is that Buddhism is so well known for its lists whoever wrote out the scriptures of the Buddha had an incredibly orderly mind because there's list after list after list after list. And of course, there is a list about effort. And the Buddha spoke really about the four noble efforts. And this is sometimes even translated as being the four heroic efforts. It might be a little extreme. 
if the kind of efforts that are spoken of are misunderstood, they very easily lead to striving and to judgment. But it's very important to know the different possibilities of effort that are helpful in this practice. The first noble effort that the Buddha spoke about was the effort to foster and to enhance skillful qualities of being that are already part of our makeup. These qualities of being, that it is skillful to foster and enhance, they're not strangers to us. Qualities of sensitivity, of openness, of generosity, our capacity to allow, to give, our capacity to let go, our capacity to understand. All of these are skillful qualities of our being. To enhance and to foster them actually means to make the effort to consciously develop them. I have to say that for many Westerners, this is an extraordinarily difficult task. And I think this is more difficult for Westerners than people in the East. We have a long history in learning how to focus on the negative, the imperfect, the faults, and the weaknesses and the failings within ourselves. If we were asked to, most people can make lists of their own imperfections. And we have a long training in giving attention to them, in trying to do things with them. It's not always easy for us to honor and to respect those parts of our being which are so rich and so wholesome and so conducive to well-being. Actually, many people find themselves feeling guilty. You know, people find in meditation, you know, that something arises, you know, a a really, an openness or, or some sort of breakthrough in sensitivity and the difficulty in acknowledging it. You know, well, I had this moment today, but it'll probably go away. You know, I'm sure it'll be gone by lunchtime and I'll be angry again, you know. Or it's probably my hormones or, or something, you know. It's, I'm sure it's an accident. How difficult many people find it to actually trust and honor within themselves the rich, the opening, the conducive, the wholesome. We don't have that difficulty with the negative. We don't have that difficulty in, in that much difficulty in emphasizing and highlighting all that is wrong. And in very many, in a very real way, this 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 retraining of energy, this redirecting of energy, of appreciation and gratitude inwardly, of sensitivity inwardly, of loving attention, is one of the hardest tasks for us to develop in meditation. To foster and to enhance that which is wholesome, that which is rich, that which is really opening, 
means really in every moment that it arises that a, a moment of sensitivity, a moment of compassion, a moment of generosity or allowing, really to become totally, deeply acquainted experientially, intimately, with wh- how, what that experience is within our minds and bodies. Every time we experience a moment of peace, not to dismiss it or to hold our breath while we wait for it to disappear, but to explore deeply what that quality is within ourselves. It came from within. It didn't fall from the fan. It came from within ourselves. What does it feel like? What does it feel like in our bodies and in our feelings? What difference do those feelings, those qualities make in the way that we see ourselves? In the presence of those qualities, what difference do they make in the way in which we hold the world around us, in the way in which we hold others? To go deeply into them, to explore them, we foster and enhance those qualities, those parts of our being, not through clinging and not through holding, that here's this moment and I better grab it before it disappears, but rather through investigation. In those moments when those very rich qualities of being arise within ourselves, to see clearly the factors that made them possible. They may seem like accidents, but they are not accidents. To see clearly the factors that actually allowed them to arise Sensitivity and openness and compassion, they're not a question of luck and not a question of of an accidental encounter or of karma. The factors that really allow those qualities to emerge within ourselves, the very capacity to let go, to connect and to open. And we know how true that is for ourselves when we really are able to let go, when we are really very deeply able to connect, when we're very deeply able to open. How how out of that there comes forth this blossoming, this emergence of of a real taste of sensitivity, a real real taste of, of compassion and love is born out of our capacity to let go and to connect. They're the factors that make it possible. And are those factors of letting go, of opening, of connecting, are they accidental? Is it just a random occurrence that, you know, maybe we'll be lucky today, you know, and have something that we'll, let, that we'll be able to let go of? Are they accidental? Or is letting go and opening and connecting real qualities of mind that we're consciously able to cultivate. I think it's so important to remind ourselves that when we speak about conscious effort, that it implies the absence of passivity. It means that we don't hang around in here, waiting in hope to be struck by a bolt of enlightenment or to be struck by a moment of compassion. It doesn't mean either that we strive for them and reach for them and try and make ourselves compassionate, try and make ourselves let go. 
It really means consciously directing our attention and our energy to our own capacities of being that are present within ourselves. The second noble effort the Buddha spoke of was not to become entangled in the unwholesome, the unskillful states that arise. Wiser words are hardly ever spoken. We could probably make lists again of unwholesome and unskillful states that we have experienced in the past and in the present. Even throughout today, it's not difficult for us to define what is unskillful. It causes pain, very simply. The unskillful states, the unskillful qualities, they cause pain. It's really nothing more than that. They cause separation, they cause division, they cause disconnection, they cause conflict. They cause anger and greed. Whatever leads to disconnection creates pain and is an unskillful state that it is wise not to become entangled in. I would say that it does take a certain effort to sustain the unskillful. There's very little in this world that is sustained through its own momentum. It does take a certain effort to sustain the unskillful, but we are often not conscious of it. When we have a state of mind or feelings or images or projections or judgments that arise, it often does seem that they have a life of their own. You know, that they're somehow part of us and they just intrude and they, and they just continue for a while until they pass away. But the energy, the energy that sustains negativity or anger or greed or, or jealousy or hatred, the, the energy that sustains those states of mind is the energy of dwelling and the energy of holding, and the energy of feeding them. It is what sustains those unskillful states of mind that do bring us pain. And it's not a question of judging that. It's really much more of a question of, are we able to redirect that energy? Think of the energy that is in judgment. Think of the energy that is in blame and in anger. I mean, it's it's a fantastic energy. I mean, the way that it goes may not be too helpful, but the energy itself is a fantastic energy. Are we able to redirect it so that we don't feed into that which brings us pain? Are we able to bring that energy to really bring us to be mindful of what is arising and our relationship to it? We may unconsciously dwell upon things, but dwelling upon things is not a life sentence. It is not as if we're going to be there forever. Can we, in the moment of dwelling, in the moment of experiencing states of mind that bring pain, can we consciously cultivate spaciousness, openness, letting go? Meditation is it's not only a conscious application of, of effort, I feel really such a major part of meditation is vision. 
It is really developing a deep sense of trust and faith in our own possibilities, in our own potential. And part of that trust and faith is trusting in our own capacity to open and to let go. Sometimes letting go of things is a very organic process. It's a very natural process. Sometimes letting go is also comes through some quite conscious determination. Now when we hear the word determination, sometimes we get kind of antsy. You know, and think, well, aha, determination equals suppression. But I would make a distinction. To me, suppression is the unwillingness to see something. Determination to me is the clear seeing of something and the unwillingness to engage in something that we intuitively know is going to bring pain and conflict. And to me, this is an incredibly important distinction. Now, sometimes we have the conviction, you know, we see difficult states of mind, of anger and greed or or envy arising, and, and we feel, well, And we have this conviction that these memories and these feelings, they're arising for a purpose, that all things have their purpose in this cosmos. And they must be arising for a purpose. And especially, I feel, in in meditation circles, we conceive of the purpose of this repetition is that we haven't yet learned what we need to learn. And that's why it keeps arising. Now, sometimes this is true. Um, I would also say that in my experience anyway, there's not that much new that arises in terms of thoughts. How many really new thoughts have you had today? How many really totally unique, new, brand, clean, new images have you experienced today? In my experience, there's not that many, not that many. That many of the things that keep repeating themselves, actually we've already learned what we need to learn. How many things that we've repeat have we already actually learned what we need to learn? And that the repetition is more habitual than a process of learning. If we appreciate, I mean, sometimes new things arise, and then it's really worth reflection and inquiry and full attention. But if we see that we're just simply replaying and repeating then there's a place for the skillful, conscious determination not to become entangled. It's like if you have a toothache, you know. I mean, it it's, it's could be quite helpful to hang out with it for a few days and learn about your relationship to pain, etc., etc. And after, after a few days, you go to a dentist. So very similar, you know, with, with many of our repetitions. There's a point, actually, where we're not learning anymore. We're actually we're punishing ourselves. And there is a point when there is some real conscious determination to see and not to be entangled. The third quality of effort, the third very noble effort, is to encourage and to foster skillful qualities of being which have not yet arisen. 
hard to figure out how to do that. Um, it seems some, somewhat of a challenge. How do we encourage something which has not yet arisen without getting involved in denial of what is or getting involved in striving? How do we encourage the skillful without bouncing back either between rejection and craving? It's not an easy balance to find, and yet it's so much of what meditation is about, isn't it? I mean, if we were all fully enlightened and fully compassionate and fully awake and loving and wise human beings, we probably wouldn't feel that much called to be here. Hmm? What we actually come here for is, is, is really to seek for qualities often, to move towards qualities which may not be present in our lives. We don't, I mean, what attracts us to meditation is not to experience yet more of the same, not to have a closer intimacy with a chaotic mind or, or with sore knees or, or with pain. What attracts us to meditation is the possibility of change. The, the, the sense of possibility emerging within ourselves of qualities, of, of potential that may not be right now present in our lives. Whether it's freedom, whether it's equanimity, whether it's clarity, whether it's open-heartedness, it is true in meditation that we're initiating a journey and a movement. And part of that, there is a quality of reaching for what is not here. What I feel the important distinction is, is not reaching for clarity, for compassion, for love, or for wisdom as some future destination, or as some personal possession. To me, this is wrong effort. To me, what is more skillful and wise effort is to clearly acknowledge that sense of possibility within ourselves, acknowledge clearly our capacity to be truly compassionate, truly awake, truly loving, is it possible in this moment? In the midst of whatever we are experiencing, no matter how difficult, no matter how unpleasant, if it brings us back to this moment, to me it is wise effort. It's, it's so difficult for us at times not to think in a linear way that the positive is going to come about as a result of getting rid of the negative or that we're going to experience peace when we've got rid of the disturbing or we're going to experience happiness when we've got rid of pain. We tend to think in such linear ways. And I think what, what meditation really suggests to us is a whole other way of thinking, a whole other way of seeing, that what it suggests to us is the possibility of finding spaciousness in the moment that we're experiencing contraction, of finding a place of stillness amidst the greatest busyness, of finding a place of clarity even as the mind is going through places of confusion the possibility of bringing clarity to this, of finding equanimity in those moments when we feel imbalanced. Unfortunately, we grow up on a diet that suggests to us 
that perfection, seeking perfection or realizing perfection is what our lives are all about. You know, everything in our culture suggests to us the desirability of pursuing perfection, whether it's the perfect apple in the supermarket, whether it's a perfect lifestyle, whether it's a perfect body. And I feel we absorb this a great deal, and too often we are simply victims of our own delusions about perfection. It seems to me that one of life's greatest challenges is in how we respond to the imperfect. I don't know about you, but I never expect my mind to be perfect. I never expect to have the perfect personality. I never expect that my life is going to come to a point where there is no crisis, where there is nothing to respond to. Quite frankly, to let go of our illusions about perfection is to lay down a tremendous burden Think of the suffering that is created in the pursuit of perfection. Now, that doesn't mean a kind of passivity and resignation, you know, that life is imperfect, too bad, you know, and, and suffering is what it's all about. Just recognizing that there's very little in this world that fits in with our ideas of perfection. There's very few times, possibly, when... Reality can conform to our images and our expectations. It is an actuality that we are actually never going to erase the past. It's also an actuality that our futures are going to remain uncertain and without guarantees. Our essential challenge as a human being is how we respond to all of this. In the midst of anger, can we call forth love? In the midst of resentment, can we bring forth forgiveness? In the midst of pain, can we find a place of calmness within ourselves that knows no denial? In the midst of confusion, can we summon forth awareness to bring clarity? These are our resources, and these are our possibilities. And the effort that we use is to make the space, to make the inner environment in which those resources and those possibilities can emerge and can transform. You know, there's that wonderful saying of Don Juan that to an ordinary person, everything in life is either a blessing or a curse, whereas to a wise person, everything is a challenge. And I fear that many of life's obstacles that we meet, what they do present us with is the possibility of really discovering new depths of openness and compassion and understanding. The fourth effort the Buddha spoke about was the effort to avoid the unskillful, which has not yet arisen. Now, again, that seems slightly paranoid. And... Avoidance does carry certain associations for us, too. It's a very bad spiritual word. 
you know, avoidance is considered really totally a no-no, that you're, now you're not spiritual if you avoid anything, you're not open if you avoid anything at all. But I think before we get all too carried away with our associations, it is actually helpful to reflect a little bit. Reflect a little bit on the past. Is there anything in your life you have experienced in the past which you know intuitively, directly, brought pain, conflict, suffering, alienation, that you know would actually be wiser not to get into again? Reflect in the present. Have you experienced in the days here states of mind that bring distress and sadness, states of mind that bring contraction and limitation, ways of reacting that breed discontent, might be fairly wise not to become entangled in them. Think even in terms of the future, do we see the mind reaching with ambitiousness, with goals, with striving that again create pain? Would it not be wise not to engage? Is it not also wise at times to avoid that which we know we are do not have the resources present within ourselves in that moment to be with skillfully. There are times when stepping back and stepping out of can be very skillful action. It's just one last thing about effort I would like to mention, and that is to look at the difference between intensity and passion. Sometimes in meditation, people become very entangled in intensity and they mistake this for wise effort. You know, they become so focused on getting somewhere and on goals that there's a rejection and a denial of the present moment or become so focused on being a perfect yogi that they become very judgmental of others and righteous or they become so concentrated on being concentrated that they become very tense and narrow. And to me, this kind of intensity is actually a real hindrance in the practice because it really tends to deny that quali- those qualities of softness and openness, which are the essence of wise effort. And to me, wise effort is not born of intensity, but it is born of a certain quality of passion, I feel in this practice that what is needed is, is much, more of a, much more than a lukewarm curiosity about transformation or much more than an ambivalence about, you know, well, maybe I'll be more peaceful, maybe not. What is much more needed to me is a real passion, or what is really helpful, I would say, is a real passion for clarity and understanding a real commitment to openness and to love and to freedom. And out of that passion, there comes inspiration. A willingness to open to and to embrace each moment that arises as our teacher. Intensity has goals and passion has love. And this is the basic difference. Passion has a love of clarity and a love of stillness, not in the future, but a love that brings us closer to this moment that we're experiencing, to understand its possibilities and to understand our own potential 
Intensity always takes us farther away from this moment. And from that inspiration comes interest, comes energy, comes effort to see and to explore both who we are and who we can be. To see and explore not only what we're experiencing, but how we can experience it. To see and explore this moment and ourselves just as we are. And in that wise effort, in that skillful skillful effort, to meet the path and the goal are not separate. They are just one and the same. just have a couple of minutes quietly together. This talk was given by Christina Feldman at Insight Meditation Society on July 23, 1990. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.